other side of midnight presents the Midnight Files. Midnight in the desert, shooting stars across the sky. Magical journey will take us on a ride filled with the longing, searching for the truth. Will we make it till tomorrow? Will the sun shine on you? Midnight in the desert. For millennia, humans have stared up at the sky, looked up at the stars, and wondered what's out there. Well, uh, for the last 60 or 70 years, which is not very long in the grand scheme of things, we have begun to explore exactly what's out there. And I have always been fascinated, as I'm sure so many of you have, by continuing to wonder what's out there beyond what we know here on Earth and beyond what we see. Somebody who does a great job uh, not only wondering and asking a lot of the questions that many of us ask, but actually providing some answers, is Amy Shira Title. She's an author. She's a popular science writer. She's a space flight historian, a YouTuber, and uh, the author of a, a fascinating book that a lot of people are talking about, Fighting for Space, the incredible true story of the female pilots who each dreamed of being the first American woman in space. Amy, thanks so much for coming on the radio with me. Thanks so much for having me. So, uh, Amy, your book has gotten a lot of attention, uh, deservedly so, and you chronicle um, everything going back to the the Mercury 13 program and uh, the rest of the history of women in space. Give us a Reader's Digest version of what the contribution to the American space program women have played. Uh, Well, women have played a very important part in the space program since its inception. I mean, but women played a sort of a hidden role. You know, if you're if you're looking back at the 60s, the men were what you saw. It's used the iceberg metaphor. And then, you know, everything under the water is all the engineers, all the doctors. And there were a lot of women who were specialists. Um, you know, whether they were astronomers teaching about celestial navigation for going to the moon or they were the seamstresses making the, the parachutes that allowed them to land safely after a trip. Women have always had a really important role. It's just that it took women longer to kind of get into that center spotlight role as astronauts because there were a lot of limitations in what women could do, uh, both in the military as pilots and that kind of fed into the astronaut corps until about the, the late 70s when women were able to start serving as astronauts. And who, who was the first female astronaut in the United States? The first woman, the first American woman was Sally Ride in 1983. So, you know, a few, a few years, a couple decades into the space age, it was we, we first saw the first American woman to fly in space. How have other countries like Russia, how have they been in terms of incorporating women into their space flights? 
About the same. Uh, Valentina Tereshkova was the first woman in space, and she flew a full 20 years before Sally Ride. She flew in 1963, but she actually flew um, because of the press that American female pilots were garnering about their fight to actually join the astronaut corps in the early 60s. There was so much media attention around this idea of women taking on NASA for their what they felt was their fair shot in space that the Soviets kind of said, well, listen, I mean, it was a, let, let's be real. You know, the space race was a giant one-upsmanship contest. You know, so the Soviets looking at this media were saying, well, if they're going to do this, we need to pull the rug out from under them again and score another first in space. You know, Soviets had first satellite, first human, first living thing in space, a lot of firsts. And they launched Tereshkova to get that first. And um, they actually launched the second woman in space as well in 1982, because NASA announced that Sally Ride was going up and they wanted to beat NASA one more time. You write that what I referenced earlier, the term or the name Mercury 13, which I think a lot of people have heard over the years, that that name Mercury 13 was inaccurate, that that was invented Mm -hmm. actually much later by a Hollywood producer in the 1990s. Any other public misconceptions about the Mercury 13 uh, program that you can clear up oh so many (laughs) (laughs) um yeah no the the myth of the what i kind of call the myth of the mercury 13 was that there was this group of 13 women who had the quote-unquote right stuff but the wrong sex to fly in space um the reality was they weren't a unit they weren't a group like you kind of see the male astronauts were at the time you know the mercury seven they were dubbed by the press in the late 50s 1959 when they were introduced they were a group they trained together they were very much a unit the women never all met the women were never all in the same place and they even though they did medical testing you know medical testing doesn't clear you to do something specialized like fly in space in an era where literally everything was unknown. Like, you know, were eyeball, you know, your eyeballs might distort in zero gravity. That was a real concern people had in the early 60s. So not only that, but the women weren't all in agreement about what the best, um, the best next step for them in this kind of desire to fly in space was. Some of them thought that, you know, really causing a stir and getting media attention was the best way to potentially force NASA into allowing them to fly in space. Some felt that it was going about things the wrong way, that it was going to piss off the right people and make sure that they had no chance in space. So not only were they not a coherent group, they weren't all in agreement. They were backing different paths. They, they, you know, some of them thought that it was a real program. Some of them thought that it wasn't. It was, it was a very messy thing that we've kind of put this, this banner of the Mercury 13 over because it, it sounds really good on TV. I've often asked myself the question, and I've never come up with a satisfactory answer, that if I were to get a tattoo of something, what would it be? And there's nothing I'm really fond enough of, I don't think, that I would actually get the image tattooed on me. I have Mm -hmm. to say, though, your tattoo is one of the more interesting tattoo selections that I've come across. Tell folks what your tattoo is. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> my, uh, I have a tattoo on my, my left inner bicep um, of a Gemini Regala wing, which is an extremely obscure landing system now so developed in the, in, from 1961 to 1965. So imagine a, a triangle that's got like a seam running down the middle. So it's kind of got two lobes and that thing hung over a little blunt capsule and it was designed to make the capsule 
land like an airplane-ish on a runway. And the idea was, you know, let's not send guys into space, have them survive two weeks and then potentially drown um, because of splashdown landings and, you know, not employ a huge chunk of the Navy. So, um, yeah, that was, it was a really interesting thing. It's what I wrote my, um, it's what I wrote my master's degree on, my master's thesis on. And I just, I love it. I kind of fell in love with this weird story and it got me Loving weird history, weird, weird stories of history. But they, they never used that, right? That Gemini Regalo? They, right? they tried really hard, oh. and it sent two guys to the hospital. Wow, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. Not how I'd like yeah. to travel to space, that's for sure. No, no. Would you say, obviously, you're super interested in space. Uh, I am, too. Uh, I know this might be a different, there's no, there's no way to answer this other than your own anecdotal experience. Do men seem to be more interested in space exploration than women, or does it break down about even along the genders? I, my own experience, I think, is skewed because I, I typically, I focus in history. I really am focused in kind of pre, pre-space age and early space age space race, and that definitely skews male. I mean, my YouTube numbers are like 97% male, which wow. is insane. But I think a lot of it is that, you know, when, you, when you're talking about the history of space and kind of how that's developed generationally, in, in the 60s, it was, you know, little boys were the ones who were told they could be astronauts and little girls were the ones who told, were, were told that they could, you know, do something else but not actually be the astronauts. So what I see in my own audience, and this is purely anecdotal, is that it's, you know, my own experience. It's guys who grew up, you know, as young boys watching the moon landing, love kind of reliving this stuff or learning new elements of it. And, you know, now as adults, they kind of pass that on. But it really is a very male dominant in the history. I think it's definitely less that way now in kind of modern space. But I definitely see my audience skews male. Uh, well, no, I, I, again, who, who knows? Maybe we both come from a, a skewed perspective, but that's been mm-hmm. my experience as well. If people are just talk, mm-hmm. t- tuning in, we're talking with Amy Shira Title. She is a uh, an author, a popular science writer, a space flight historian, and a YouTuber. If you want to check out her YouTube channel, you could just search Vintage Space on YouTube, or you can go to her website, and it has links to her book and everything everything uh, that uh, that she's doing. It was interesting to see uh, that uh, on one of the early Jeff Bezos flights that he selected the, Wally Funk, the NASA mm-hmm. aviator. I mean, that was sort of a nice nod to the contributions that women have made to the space program, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I've spoken with a few uh, friends and colleagues who are pilots who just for them personally, they were so moved to watch her finally fly in space. Because like I said earlier, some of the women that were involved in this early push for women to fly in space, she was on the campus. You know, she firmly believed that they had every chance to do it. And she you know, really pushed hard to have their voice heard and to kind of get get them seriously considered uh, to be astronauts. She actually applied for the astronaut corps, I think, twice. Once women were al- were um, were allowed to apply as astronauts, and she just never had the right qualifications. It was never the right time, and she had a stunning career in aviation. So for her to finally get up in space, even you know not in not as the commander of a mission, but just to see that to have that experience, like having having lived with her story for four years and writing fighting for space, it was like really awesome to see how happy she was about it. It was pretty great. Have you submitted your name to Mr. Bezos to get on the waiting list to go to space? 
Uh, I have not. Uh, as of yet, I, I think I'm going to have to wait for the ticket prices to go down. <laughs> Same here. Same here. <laughs> uh, you know, I am wondering your thoughts. You know, we've seen a, an incredible resurgence of interest over the last five years in UFOs or UAPs, they've gone mainstream in terms of the the coverage. New York Times, 60 Minutes, uh, CBS Sunday Morning, Fox News, CNN. They've all done major profiles on what's happening with all these UAPs. We've seen a lot of congressional action on the subject of UAPs. They've changed the reporting requirements. They We now know that they were funding this mysterious UFO watching program called A. Tip uh, to the tune of uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. Do you think that the the explosion of interest in UFOs slash UAPs does that take away at all from the funding and the media attention that should be properly paid to what's happening in terms of what NASA's doing or even private space innovators like Bezos and Musk? I don't know if it takes away kind of much. Or does it add to it? Does it add? Does it add uh, to the desire for space exploration? Yeah, I find this sort of like modern, like current fascination with UFOs slash UAPs fascinating. Like people who would never think about this stuff are suddenly like super into it. What I what I think is neat is that it's it's getting more people thinking about space and talking about space and kind of aware of it. But where I think the hesitant to use the word danger, but where I think the kind of the negative side maybe is is that it's giving us this really skewed idea of what would be an exciting find in space. Mm. You know, we have this idea now that the, the, the best thing that anyone could find in terms of extraterrestrial life or you know, anything on another planet would be something sentient that's interacting with us. When in reality, you, know, you talk to any scientist who's working on Mars or working on robotic missions to another planet, like finding fossilized evidence of past bacteria on Mars would be amazing you know anything anything like that any tiny thing you know a single cell organism on another planet would be a huge find but it's not sexy you know it's not exciting for the average person the way a strange phenomenon in a video that you can find when you're scrolling on your phone kind of jumps out so i think you know it's it's neat that it's getting people thinking and excited but I, I would hate for us to find something legitimately like super cool and verified and have people be like, eh, it's not as exciting as right, that. Right, right, right. Every, everybody's expecting uh, the guy from the day the earth stood still uh, to, you know, walk right onto mm-hmm. the White House or something. Uh, do you have a take on what, we, what we've seen with all these UAP videos, the so-called um, Tic Tac videos and these other videos, these flying pyramid videos? Do you have a take on what these objects are? I'm really not sure, and it's it's um, a little bit out of my wheelhouse to speculate too much. Um, I, what I think that's interesting about this is that, you know, there are things we legitimately don't know what they are, which is not to say that they are therefore alien. Um, you know, it could be that what we're seeing is, is artifacts in our radar. We're seeing, you know, the military testing some kind of drone around pilots to see how they react to this thing in the sky and they don't know what they're looking at but some commanding officer does now there's there's i think there's probably a very normal explanation for a lot of these things that you know it's probably classified on some level we don't you don't actually get to know everything the military does. Uh, we're talking with uh, amy shearer title you could check out her youtube channel vintage space some of the non-uap related space news news which is pretty 
exciting is the Mars rover Perseverance has been uh, doing some really interesting explanation uh, exploration on Mars. What are some of the highlights of what uh, of what we've seen from the the Perseverance rover? You know, I have to be totally honest with you and tell you that I have not been following the mission closely enough to be able to answer that properly for you. Um, you didn't have I, to be that I, honest. I, you could have fooled me. <laughs> believe me. I wouldn't have known if you yeah, were Yeah, but you know what? Someone would know, and then I'd feel bad. No, I've, um, because I work so much in, in history, I, I kind of get the highlights of, you know, the really good pictures of some of the discoveries. But um, I haven't been following the mission play-by-play as much as on this one as I have in previous ones. I apologize. Oh, no, please. It's okay. <laughs> I'm sorry for throwing that that at you unexpectedly. Hey, uh, speaking of history, you know, so much of space history seems to deal with the uh, with the moon landing and the Apollo program and the trips to the moon. And I know now there's plans to go back to the moon. But why haven't we been to the moon in 50 years? I mean, for something that was so exciting and that seemed to jumpstart not only so much in the way of technology, but uh, so much in the way of uh, inspiring people to want to be a part of the space program. Why hasn't there been a lunar mission in 50 years? Uh, I think there's probably a lot of reasons for that, but I think the biggest one is is a, a well, it's probably a tie for money and necessity. It is going to the moon is like really, really expensive and really dangerous. I think we've become in the last 30 years or so we've, especially in the last 10 years with private companies getting involved, I think we're under the impression that space flight is getting, becoming routine, that it's easy, that it's safer. And it's still really hard. I mean, everything about going into space is trying to kill you. Um, It's hugely dangerous. It's hugely expensive. We haven't really had a need to spend that much money and put people's lives at risk to go to the moon. You know, we, we did it in the 60s because of a, a need to beat the Soviet Union and to express technological dominance. You know, that was an expression of the Cold War. And, you know, Apollo lost funding. We didn't see the program through. The last three missions were canceled and things were scaled down big time and we never had the money to continue it. So when you, when you look at, like, the lack of a Cold War, the lack of a, a kind of global conflict that's pushing it forward, coupled with you know, NASA has a, a, a tiny fraction of its budget that it had in the 60s. It just hasn't really been in the cards. And I, I have had this conversation with friends recently of, you know, we're going back to the moon soonish, but why? You know, it's, it, it is still that question of, like, we don't have that big need aside from kind of inspiration, um, which is in itself a need. But, you know, there's no overarching plan that, that is kind of obvious. It's kind of, it's a little bit loose. So it's it's interesting that we're kind of thinking about doing it now. But, you know, Apollo inspired a whole generation of engineers. So maybe we'll get that again. We'll get that influx of people kind of pursuing science careers. It would um, be good it, for the planet, I think. <laughs> uh, no, it, it certainly would be. It would be interesting. Uh, lastly, I'll end with a, a question based on, on this planet. Uh, I know you have been a boxing enthusiast from time to time. <laughs> Saturday, a uh, big fight out of the United Kingdom, Tyson Fury versus Dillian White uh, for the um, you know WBC and the Ring Heavyweight Championship and the WBC Interim Heavyweight Championship. It, it should be a, a pretty big deal, and it's taking place in London. Do you have somebody that you're taking in this fight? No, I don't. I, whenever I've watched fights, it's usually usually with my boxing coach, 
to look at the way they're moving around opponents so I can try to understand why I keep getting hit in the face. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think people do anything to get a look at that tattoo on your bicep. So I think a, a lot of folks will uh, will take the chance. Hey, uh, Amy, thanks so much. I really appreciate the time this morning. And uh, if people are interested in in buying your book, I hope they'll uh, they'll do so. The book is called Fighting for Space. And you also have another book called Breaking the Chains of Gravity, which we'll talk about next time you're on the show. Thanks so much. Sounds good. Have a great evening.